Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Prepoint Pod. My name's Louise, your host. My guest today is Stephanie from Oz Dancers Overseas. She's a former dancer turned doctor and sports nutritionist. Her passion is supporting the pre-professional and professional dancer through advocating for optimal performance nutrition and creating mentally healthy training environments. We speak today about the challenges young elite dancers face in the studio when it comes to body image and working out what is myth and what is fact when it comes to performance nutrition for dancers. I hope this pod inspires you to go get them, but just don't get them all at once. Hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the Prepoint Pod. Hi, Louise. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, really glad that you agreed to join me. So, Stephanie, tell me um, about Oz Dancers Overseas and tell me about you, what you do, and the things that you're passionate about. Yeah, so for those not knowing me yet, I'm Stephanie, a former dancer. I, am, I was a musical theatre performer um, and then an injury ended my career very early. I went into medicine and then later into sports nutrition um, and I tried to see as much of the world as possible while working in medicine. And then when I felt like, let's say, safe enough in, in my knowledge, um, I started to combine both. And this is when I set up Ostensils Overseas um, because I've been seeing loads of um, Australian dancers struggle overseas, lots of it um, being due to a culture shock or different uh, ways of like how ballet is perceived or how a dancer is being perceived um, and so I set up this platform with um, um, social accounts where I try to educate as much as possible and raise awareness as much as possible but I also do see patients one-on-one worldwide which is amazing because it gives insights that are really invaluable. So, yes, so you mentioned Oz Dancers Overseas and and it's sort of designed to help dancers who aspire to move overseas and you yourself are based in Europe. Tell us a little bit about how you how you how you run that business and some of the some of the locations and places that you that you service. Cuz it's not yeah. just Australian dancers. <laughs> 
Right. It it started off with Australian dancers, obviously, um, hence the name. Um, but yes, I am currently, thanks to the pandemic, based in the Basel area, which is where, you know, like you've got 10 minutes to France, 10 minutes to Switzerland or Germany or, you know, depending on where you want to start. Uh, so it's a beautiful area. Um, quite many smaller companies here in this area. But then again, also um, like airports like Frankfurt Airport or so they are just not far away so kind of yeah pretty much Central Europe I would say. For that I used to split my time between Zurich the UK and Sydney but I mean most probably is still a long way to go until that is back on. And yes the good thing is I mean um, even before the pandemic telemedicine was a big thing already. Um, it is even bigger right now and kind of found, found a way working through all the different time zones and really being able to see dancers from all over the world and that it really means from New Zealand um, then all over Europe and North America to like somewhere California Hawaii this is it, it's really amazing it's actually incredible it's really incredible and it, I think it demonstrates that there is such a need for uh, clinicians that have that an understanding of of ballet, you know, and I think, you know, um, being a sports dietitian, as I guess I would call, you know, someone with your qualifications or really, um, yeah, so a doctor and a sports dietitian in Australia, sometimes it's really hard to find um, practitioners that that really understand dance and the way that dance is scheduled and the physical demands of dance. And I think sometimes um, dancers are underestimated a little bit. Would you agree with that or? Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> this is, it is, I mean, there are great sports doctors or sports nutritionists out there and they may be amazing for the soccer team or for the tennis player, the, you know, the emerging tennis star or whatever, but their perception of dance somehow is like, oh, that's sweet, that's cute. And it is like, wait, actually their workload is a lot higher than that of your tennis player or your soccer players. And so, no, it's not cute. I mean, it is beautiful, but it is also like, flipping out work <laughs> absolutely and so I guess in that you know you must see some some of those misconceptions uh translate a little bit into fueling as well so fueling habits um that dancers might ad adopt or um you know um misconceptions and things you know in terms of you know the advice that dancers get or the the way that we sort of think about fueling do you want to talk more around that Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, well, I think actually the biggest misconception is the one that as a dancer, you can't eat really or not eat much or you can't really enjoy what you eat. So food is kind of something where I think it is acknowledged that you need it, but please don't need much of it. This is how dancers are. Sometimes I like to use the to use the term brainwashed from an early age on, because as I just mentioned a minute ago, it is so much hard work. And I mean, while they are dancing, their body is functioning the same way as any other athlete, Olympic athlete. I mean, we've just all been mesmerized by the Olympics, I guess. And so that's actually how a dancer's body works. And I mean, on top of that, and I, I always love to say that because I've run a couple of half marathons. So when I'm running a half marathon, I don't need to make it look pretty. But when I'm on the stage, I've got to tell a story and I've got to make it look effortless. So that comes on top of it. So it is really, really, really a lot of hard work and a lot of hard work requires a lot of fuel for the body to really 
dance at its best. Um, so that's one big part where I think that starts so early that dancers are being told like, oh, please better not eat this. It comes back like a boomerang because it is not good for the body to underfuel, which I probably get back to in a second, but you, <laughs> you just asked me about all these aspects. I think the next one is actually moral labels. So we give food yeah. moral labels. So like mm. that's good food to eat as a, um, um, as a dancer or that's bad food. You should avoid this. And I mean, we all know we just can't trick our brain. If we give food a moral label like this is bad, our brain is just going to think about it all the time. This is how humans function. Um, and then it's also advice like what we see a lot on the socials sweet potato can potatoes they can balance hormones and this is like well you know food is powerful but not that powerful and I mean if it really <laughs> if it really was we'd use it as a medication that can be prescribed so there's mm. this is so blown up this whole thing this is so blown up and it's like can we maybe just go back to the basics and see what do they do per day what does their body need and then what do they enjoy to eat and I mean that that's basically it actually it seems so simple but for some reason it's just so complicated in a ballet environment and I think I think that you know um what you were saying earlier too about um you know the uh, the dancers aren't supposed to eat much you know and it's sort of like where does that actually come from is is that something you know obviously it, you know dance is it's it's an aesthetic art like it's an art form so that that whole emphasis on being quite lean and you know uh being weightless and the you know the fact that you do have to make it look pretty but it is such a strange concept that we've gone okay that definitely comes down to what you're eating like that that must be the you know because you are what you eat right you know like that must <laughs> be the thing that we need to change it's it's not the training and it's not the rest and it's not being mentally well like it's definitely the fact that you've you're eating too much or yeah or the wrong foods as you were saying before like that the moral labels yeah yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm afraid that really lots of of um, not eating much and and giving food these moral labels actually dates back to early Balanchine days. I know that there's actually some research out there. Um, I think it's even found in PubMed where we normally would find all the medical data. But um, he was yeah <laughs> famous for. Um, triggering eating disorders and giving out this sort of advice and kind of to me it often seems like after that it was just adopted so if one of those famous choreographers or ballet company directors can say that anyone can say it mm. yeah it's interesting I mean ballet and the, the training principles of ballet are so traditional and you know they're definitely our training principles that we still you know use from Balanchine's time it's interesting you say about the the PubMed reference. So for people listening, PubMed is like I don't know Google for for PubMedics health practitioners. Or healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's where we'll go to find research papers, basically. And I actually, in when I was writing my master's thesis, came across quite a few articles because I think to to paint context and to give um, to create context for maybe an examiner who wasn't really understanding ballet very well like I did I did have to go back and explain why the aesthetic was what it was and why and and I think I found one um paper I think it was either Spanish or South American 
and they talked about the the desire to have the shape of the of a dancer's leg not like a cone and this is how that it was translated but yeah and I just thought that was so strange and my supervisors who aren't ballet trained they're like what not like a cone what do you mean like and they meant well the calf has to be big and the, the upper thigh can't be as big as the bottom because then you'll look like a cone and I just sort of thought this is so ridiculous like what about how high you can jump what about how many you know pirouettes you can do and what about what about the as you said before the emotion you convey like all those things are way more important or you know I see them as more important I suppose when I'm looking at a dancer on the stage I definitely am not checking out to see whether their legs are cone shaped or not I mean I don't know totally (laughs) totally and I mean this is really another thing I like to bring up always it is as an audience I always think we want to see the big emotions on stage, right? Mm. But if someone is underfueled in this desire to have thick, thin legs, they can't even tap into their emotions. So what, what's the point of it? I, I don't get it. I can't understand it. Yeah, and I think sometimes you, you'll watch a performance with someone who just looks as though they're really suffering for their, for their art and it doesn't really evoke a feeling like I am so confident that they're going to nail those fuetes. I think you, you just sort of are a bit afraid that maybe they won't make it. And maybe maybe that is, enter- like maybe some, some people watch ballet and that is actually what does mesmerise them is that these sylph-like dancers, you know, they can achieve these amazing things and look at them, you know, they're, they're just they're in you know in a world of their own but yeah it's I guess as a health practitioner I kind of think oh my gosh is this person going to make it till the end I don't know and we know we know I mean just Nikki and I published the research last year um we know that there's loads of dancers thinking that the skinnier they are the more more likely they will be cast for a significant significant role so let me just look at the data it was yeah, 71 of female dancers. We interviewed around 250 dancers in total. Um, and 71% think the skinnier they are, the more likely or the higher their chances to be cast for a significant role. This is like, wow, um, wait, there's something really wrong. Because then we've got healthcare, healthcare practitioners just like you or like myself, we, we sit there and we are like, they're probably not going to make it or... If they make it, they're probably not even going to be happy because they feel like, oh, I wasn't strong enough or, you know. And normally they then think, so the dancers then think like, oh, I didn't put enough, uh, put, I didn't put in, sorry, I didn't put in enough hours in the studio. Whereas mm. you mentioned rest and sleep and recovery. It's like, well, that's probably actually where the imbalance is and what would have helped mm. you to like nail it on stage. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I have fallen into that trap before of feeling like I wasn't good enough and that one of those things I could control was, you know, how skinny I was. And it's such a sad, sad path to go down, I have to say. But it is interesting, you know, uh, to then reflect upon that, you know, with different knowledge that I have now and with coming from a place of wanting to help dancers and, and just sort of thinking, well, where could I actually have you know, done, done better. And I I reflect and I go, actually, probably if I had thought more carefully about how I was fueling and the rest I was giving my body and maybe um, some supplementary training and timing that properly, like putting all of those building blocks together, maybe, you know, um, it would have, it would have made dancing so much more comfortable. 
I guess now we're moving into my next question, which was when dancers don't fuel properly, what can go wrong? So, you know, we're saying, well, as an audience member, we're sitting there going, oh my gosh, are they going to make it to the end? Um, maybe they miss out on casting opportunities because they're not as strong as they could be. What are some other things that you see in the clinic? Yeah, or maybe they miss out on casting opportunities because they are, again, injured. Because this is one of the, if not the most common sign of being under fuel. Because we do think, oh, I think there is a, there's an attitude of, you know, like, oh, injuries happen in dance. But if you trace it back, this is actually a lot of injuries don't happen because of bad luck. They happen because of underfueling and not resting enough and you're just not getting the balance right. Um, so injuries, yes, yeah, stress fractures in particular, pretty much a sign of, mm, I mean, yeah, kind of that talked away as, you know, um, oh, you need to work on your technique. This is why you got this stress fraction. And it's like, well, actually, it may pretty much have been a reaction of your bone to underfueling. Um, so definitely. And then also so many other things. Uh, there's the immune system. Lots of dancers, you know, they catch an infection here and there and, you know, all the time. And this is because their immune system just simply doesn't have enough energy to make the cells, to build the cells, to really fight off viruses, bacteria. Um, and um, talking about bacteria, gut issues. Everyone is like, oh, I want to have a healthy gut and gut health. I mean, gut health is just such a zeitgeisty buzzword at the moment. It is totally amazing, yeah. you know. <laughs> you know, I don't want to belittle it. It is totally amazing. But the way it is approached in dance is like, oh, I have gut issues, so I need to cut out more foods. Whereas the therapy most of the time is actually to include more and more of a variety. Mm. Um, but of course, if, if you're under fueling, your gut goes like, well, actually, you know what, I can't really do my job at the moment. So you get issues like um, bloating or constipation. They are, they are super common. Um, whereas at the same time, actually talking about bacteria, we always think like, oh, I'm eating healthy foods. So my gut bacteria, you know, I'm feeding my good gut bacteria. Mm. Yeah, in a sense, but if your healthy food isn't enough at the end of the day, even the good guys in your gut are going to react you know, like kind of they are going to act out. Um, so mm. they are not going to make you feel great. And we do have this connection between our gut and our brain. And then even the good guys are going to make some signals or neurotransmitters or hormones that are going to make your brain feel like, oh, it's not a great day today. Oh, I'm not feeling happy. I'm not feeling good. I'm moody. And this is how it goes. And all of that is then mm. due to underfueling. Um, and we've got hormonal issues. We always think about hormonal issues, you know, like, oh, reproduction. Like, you know, I don't want to have babies right now anyway. Um, that, is, that is just only a very small That's fraction. only one, <laughs> one path. That's only one, yeah. one cascade of hormones. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, I mean, the thing is, growth hormone, everybody always thinks like, oh, mm. that's needed, in, you know, like when you're a toddler and then, you know, um, going through adolescence and, and puberty. And it's like, well, no, you actually need growth hormone in order to adapt to your training. So the moment yeah. you are plateauing, maybe reconsider why that is. And mm. it's, again, one of those very, very sensitive moments where most dancers go like, oh, I'm not putting in enough hours in the studio, just like you mentioned. Um, mm. You always thought like, oh, you know, I didn't train enough. I didn't, you know, I skipped the rehearsal or whatever. And probably that was the best idea to skip a rehearsal um, at that time, listening to your body. Um, but 
actually, no, it is if we don't have growth hormone, we're just not going to adapt to our training. We're not going to get any better. Growth and, and it's not just hunting. growing muscles either. It's it's actually, um, you know, I guess like when people think growth hormone, like you said, they think height. They think, you know, oh, well, but I'm finished growing. It's it's not, a, you know, also, oh, width, I don't want to get, you know, bigger. It's like, well, no, but you do need to regenerate the tissue you have. And it's about creating um, like the neural pathways from your, your brain to the muscles so that they can actually learn your skill, right? It's not just about growing and getting bigger, like physically, it's about, yeah, strengthening what's already there. Absolutely. And it will make the difference whether you can do 16 or 32 for what it is. Yeah. Backwards. Um, <laughs> with doubles. <laughs> with doubles in between. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. With your eyes closed. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, but literally, adaptation. Adaptation. So, you know, whatever you're putting your body through, um, if you want it to adapt to it, um, you need to have enough of growth hormone. Um, and then we also have, I mean, we see this a lot, very late maturation in dancers. So, mm-hmm. like, I, I think it's very, it, it is more often talked about these days that the that a pre-pubescent body is kind of preferred in female dancers. It is it is a bit different in males, although there are also voices saying um, over the past 10 years, males tend to get, you know, um, leaner and leaner. I um, mm. can't say that for Europe, actually. So I think it may depend on, on where you are in the world. Mm. But generally, we know this. I mean, that was one of the... The saddest aspects of Nikki's mm. and, and my work, actually, 40 years ago, so we published in 2020 and that was 1980, it was already published that dancers, female dancers mature so late and this, that this has not only consequences for physical health but also for mental health. And 40 years later, we had still the same results. And this is, mm. wait, we're you know we are talking about physical and mental health and we are not getting better this is for decades this is like my life Mm. you know um really a big issue Mm. yeah and I mean the challenge probably lies in that dance is it's it's a it's based on tradition like well classical ballet is Mm -hmm. is very Mm -hmm. traditional in terms of the expectations and the training but I you know and I guess it is this sort of like we'll never know if if fueling differently or you know um adapting new approaches is going to destroy the art unless we actually try um and I don't think you know that anyone would turn around and say oh like that was such a bad idea for for the dancers to fuel properly like we should never do that again it really ruined the art it is I just no. <laughs> I don't know I don't know I like it you know I we we don't know because as you said this has been it's sort of been happening for 40 years and in you know some places more than others but yeah until we actually give it a go we're never going to know how amazing ballet could be um that's the thing that really baffles yeah. me mm. that is the thing we wouldn't have companies cancelling shows due to too many injuries in the cast which still rides me up so much they made it public and and you know the public was like oh we are so sorry and I was like no I'm totally upset and and this wouldn't happen and and then also again really the aspect of 
tapping into into the emotions as a dancer so you can tap into your emotions like really if you're well fueled mm. so I, I always thought that is part of why we want to dance because mm. we want to express the emotions we can't express with words absolutely absolutely you know um yeah absolutely and it feels so nice to, yeah, to have, have these conversations as well. I think they need to be had. And as you mentioned before, like your social media, so your Instagram, Oz Dancers Overseas, all the, a lot of your content is focused around making dancers, I guess, in, in, in a very simple way, just respect their bodies and respect their minds and respect their art, but respect that if they are taking better care of themselves, then... It, there's a high chance they'll probably perform better. And I'm sure you see that clinically regularly. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Maybe maybe one example I had recently. Mm. So lots of dancers, they lose, lots of female dancers, they lose their period. So in our study it was 50%. Um, mm. Because of underfueling, overtraining, usually a combination of both, then add on top um, life stress, stress within the company, um, stress, am I going to be cast or not? And one of them actually came down with COVID and really was affected very seriously, very severely. Um, and she needed to take the time off. She was just forced to take the time off. And she kind of twisted it for herself and said, okay, then I'm going to recover from my disordered eating. And, you know, I'm just taking this time now to do it, even if it is really hard work. Um, and she not only got her period back, but it is also, she is, at a weight where she was before when she never had a period, but she was eating like randomly one fat diet after the other advice here, like, you know, um, skip dinner or only eat a banana or, you know, these things that dancers get to hear so often. And now she was like, I can't believe it. I was that weight before and I never had a period. And everyone was like, you've got to put on weight. You've got to put on weight to get your period. And it's like, no, apparently your body is totally able to cope with everything you're kind of throwing at it every single day being a dancer but it is about knowing your body knowing when to fuel so knowing the principles of sports nutrition and then just go for it it seems it seems so simple and often there are you know obviously huge cultural and mental roadblocks to that actually happening but that's a really great example Steph that it, it doesn't eating more or changing the way that you eat isn't necessarily going to make you bigger or way more you know um it because your body as you've mentioned many times um when you've spoken it uses energy for so many different processes and it's really interesting too the way that you speak about that dancer just thinking about things a little bit differently and how much of an impact that made like, do you, do you have any other examples of, of ways that dancers can reframe their thinking around food? Another one, really a nice mm. one. I think it came up probably June or July, so when it was um, exam season over here for, for the dance schools. And one dancer, she had been struggling with loads of niggles and injuries and been off training. And um, I think I started seeing her probably April or May and then, yeah, probably I think I saw her May and then um, she had her exam in July and she had started to feel much better during the day. So she wouldn't have like breakfast, maybe a bit for lunch and a big dinner, but she was really having snacks throughout the day or maybe sometimes even during class when class was like 90 minutes or two hours long. And she could push in her exam so much that she actually scored all the best marks 
And then she, she later said to me, I just saw everyone being fatigued and I was still feeling fine. Yeah. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. And, really? and, you know, that's really powerful coming to that realisation. It's like it's proof that you've, that you know, proof of concept in a way, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other, I guess, ways that you would sort of encourage dancers to think differently about food? Say, for example, um, timing of food, for example, you know, I don't want to eat right before I dance or like I find it really hard to dance with a full stomach. What are some sort of things that you would then, uh, you know, suggest to a dancer who was feeling that? Yeah, so this is usually where understanding of training intensity has come in and understanding that fat burning high intensity interval training, for example, cannot even exist and what this actually means and why it is hyped so much um, and really understanding what your body needs as or uses as fuel or prefers to use as fuel during low intensity exercise, medium intensity exercise, high intensity exercise, and also where to find your ballet class or your ballet rehearsal in all of this. And then go accordingly in order to, to really like being kind. It's, being, it's about being kind to your body and keeping it or keeping up with fuel that it prefers to use anyway, because if you don't offer what the body prefers, it again, kind of comes back as a boomerang because the body feels stressed. It will make you feel fatigued. It will make you feel a little bit like you can't push hard anymore. And I mean, I think everyone wants to push hard in class and we always want to get better every single day, don't we? Um, yeah, yeah help, helping yeah. you helping you reach your goals, really. Um, and yeah. it does require, I mean, I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. Um, it does require the readiness to rethink everything you you've heard or you've been surrounded by from an early age on because as we just said earlier probably the latest after Balanchine every, everybody thought like as teaching staff or as director you you know you know it all you can you can talk about nutrition that's fine you can talk about bodies that's fine um some do it still and they they think they know better than the doctor that an MRI that clearly shows a stress fracture is only medical information and not a medical diagnosis. And, you know, um, yes, it, but anyway, so at the end of the day, it is really, it is really about being ready to rethink a lot of things, getting rid of a lot of beliefs and myths that circulate in the dance world um, and tuning into yourself because at the end of the day, it is your body and it is your career. Hmm. yeah and it's, it's sort of think you know what what are you actually sacrificing at the end of the day you know yeah yeah I mean that's that's an interesting thought too in terms of you know um often dancers do seek advice from from their teachers you know because they are experts in ballet and there's no questioning that you know but I think it, it's really it's, it must be actually very challenging for dance teachers sometimes to to sort of feel confident giving information or supplying information, you know, to students. And um, I know there are a lot of places that dance teachers can go for information and resources and things like that, but they probably do get put on the spot a lot. And I was also thinking like for young dancers, this probably also happens a lot with parents too. And parents at the end of the day are providing, providing food for young dancers. Um, so I guess what is what have do you have any advice for for dance parents um, and even dance teachers who are really interested in 
helping their dancers dance better by feeling better. Yeah, so I think the one advice for teachers is really you are not losing your face if you refer to a specialist. Really, I, you know, I, I don't teach ballet steps, ballet exercises. I would always refer to one of the teachers. So why can't it be the same the other way around? That's the question I would always ask. So 100% in your, you really, you really are not going to lose your face. You're, you're probably your student is even going to be really grateful or the family of the student is really going to be grateful. I think, yes, and for schools, I would very often say, please work with sports dietitians because I've seen a lot of schools trying to do something better, but they recruited dietitians um, working with the general population where like health and well-being look very, very different to what it looks like in dances. And then dancers are really put on weight loss diets because someone said, I think they, they need to lose some weight. And when at the end of the day, it actually was they could change their nutrition in order to gain a more um, favorable co body composition for dance. Um, so it can go wrong even, even if someone tries to do something better than before. So there's a reason why they are sports dietitians and um, then having a background in dance and really then I think you, you are where you need to be. Um, but yeah, so um, just to emphasize that again, they are not going to think any less of you if you refer to a specialist. So that's definitely what I can say for teachers. Um, and for parents, honestly, <laughs> I don't want to be in your in your position so often because you know most of you um, haven't had a background in dance and you've been surrounded by diet culture and fitness culture messages for all your life. So what, what is normal to think? Normal to think is, let's say the kids, do the kids, do they really need to eat so much for dinner? Is it really okay that they want to have a second? Is it really okay that they say like, you know, right before they need to go to bed, like, oh, I'm kind of still a little bit hungry. I'd love to have a hot chocolate or so. Um, so of course, do you think like that can't be normal? Oh my God, they are going to balloon very soon. And this is because there is in the dance world, not, not in the general anyway, in the general world anyway, but also in the dance world, there is just not enough communication about dancers' actual needs. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. I certainly grew up when everybody was worried about um, childhood obesity, basically. Mm -hmm. Like it was, so then there was this real shift and like worry, I think, for parents that they were you know, contributing to this obesity epidemic. And I think it must be really challenging for a parent, especially if your child is a, is a fussy eater or a picky eater as well. Like that must be really mm -hmm. difficult to make sure that they are, you know, getting enough of the really essential things, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. I guess, yeah, I, I guess, again, it probably comes down to referring to a specialist and working with a specialist and I suppose being prepared to do that early if, if you know, if your child's taking taking dance really seriously and they're thinking, I, I want to make it a career and they're, you know, it sometimes is a really good thing to do um, as a preventative strategy, would you say? Absolutely. Um, I'm always so glad when I see someone early. Um, I mean, I think especially in Australia, they're transitioning into full-time training 
kind of earlier every year, it feels like. Um, so it is very often earlier than it is over here, like a year or two. Um, and so then all of a sudden, oh, and we know these transition periods, like going into full-time training and then later being a trainee or an apprentice or um, um, starting a quarter of a late contract. These are the transitions when usually things that are not kind of optimal or optimized start to go wrong and then you know show um in injuries or in not feeling great or unmotivated um and yes it is it is an investment um absolutely but you can prevent so much and at the end of the day um this investment is going to to be invaluable um really starting early and also you're empowering your kids you're empowering your kids they are not going to be so impressionable um and they are not going to believe so many things they see on social media. They are just going to be so much more autonomous earlier. Um, and also they will be able to make informed choices. So especially for those sending them overseas and some of them, you know, they move overseas 15, 16. Um, I think it, it feels a lot better if, you know, they're autonomous and they can make informed choices and they are, they are going to cope no matter what the school throws at them, you know. Yeah, that's that is that is a really a really good investment, I think. <laughs> yeah, and I know that you two work with um with psychologists as well. Um, did you want to speak a little bit about that too? Um, so yeah, the one thing is uh, actually my mother is a psychologist um, and specialised in eating disorders. So um, I mean, kind of that pairs quite well, I guess. Um, but also, um, I do have colleagues all over the world, and I often think um knowing again this is not I'm not losing my face if I say you know I can go up to here but from then on I think really um a psychologist should look at your depression I can tell you about the let's say physical or nutritional part of what probably contributes to your um, depression but then also I can't teach you the coping strategies or I can't teach you cognitive behavioral therapy or so and yes absolutely it it is not as I said, not everything is down to what we eat. A lot of it is, and a lot of it can be prevented with a really good diet. But then again, there are other symptoms as well, and they need to be addressed as well. And I think, um, you know, you were yeah, speaking before about building resilient dancers, like it does make a lot of sense to have that mental resilience as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think um, we've had such a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I do have one last question for you because this is the pre-point pod. And <laughs> so mm -hmm. what are your what are your favorite pair of point shoes or what sort of point shoes did you used to wear or do you currently wear? Tell us a little bit about your point shoe journey. Yeah, so I guess being in Europe, living in Europe, when I got my first pair of point shoes. Oh, let's say it was just a good it was just a good coincidence um so we were living close to um a i think it's a german brand or austrian brand probably a german brand um so they were they were called martins um and i think i believe they are not part of the sancha empire um and as i'm having very short toes they had a model um they could customize it but also it just came with a very low vem which was just amazing because you know all the other rams like where you've got the uh, the drawstring in the binding that would always put so much pressure on my third metatarsal so that my metatarsal would drop every now and then so I was so so glad to have them 
Um, and also you could you could just choose uh, whether you want a, a softer shank or a harder shank. So it was pretty much actually what Gainer Minden offers today. So today I'm wearing Gainer Mindens. Back then I was wearing Martins and I absolutely loved them. And kind of these are the two, you know, I, I think I would I would always go for them. Yeah, wow. I've actually never heard of that brand before. But again, like, you know, I'm in Australia. So <laughs> it's probably probably why. Um, yeah, and we have spoken about your love for Gainors um, before. That's yeah. So, and how are you still taking class at the moment, or when you I can? Still, <laughs> yes, when I can, when I can. So yeah. I had a t- I had a time where I was really wanting to build some upper body strength recently. So I was, I mean, I've, I've got all the freedom these days. So I was working more on upper body strength, but I still love to take class. Actually, I've got a very small studio downstairs here, um, and. Yes, I, I still wear point shoes as well. I Most of the time I actually do um, point bar. Um, and I just love this playing with, with the shanks. Like, what do I want to work on today? What sort of shank do I want to use? And it is, yeah, it is, it is still fun for me. Absolutely. That's, it's, so, it's so lovely that, you know, that it's, it's still such a magical part, I think, of, of a lot of health practitioners' lives that work with with dancers, you know, there's something that's still burning inside that makes mm-hmm. it such a passion. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for giving your time to be on the Prepoint Pod. I will pop your um, social media um, and website and details below, just in case anybody who hasn't already discovered you is is looking for some advice and somewhere to go and to check out your your Instagram account because it's full of information and all the time every single day you have something interesting in your stories (laughs) thank you I try to I try to (laughs) great thank you so much Stephanie thank you so much for having me Louise it was yeah I don't know I always love chatting with you okay I'll see you soon see you soon up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 